Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have spiritual hearing hear the word of the Lord. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we ask for your blessing upon your word. Lord, no one can have a spiritual gleaning and understanding of these things unless your spirit gives us light. So we pray, help us, Lord, to know your word that it would transform us to be like your Son. We know that this is your will. Help us, Lord, in our weakness. Show yourself mighty among your people, that your people would praise your great name now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we have been learning some wonderful things in our study of Romans over, really, over the last year or so, um, year and a half. We have been learning that the book of Romans is about one theme, and that theme is justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Um, this, is a, this is the most wonderful, exalted theme of the Scripture that we could possibly consider, and Paul has it front and center for us throughout this entire epistle. What we have learned is that true Christians have been justified by faith in Christ alone, but that God does not stop there. That salvation is really um, a complete purse of blessings, if you will. It's a whole package. And justification is really just the first part. It's the entree to coming into a relationship with God where we have been brought into fellowship with Him. But He wants us to know something very important. Every Christian who has been justified by God, and just as a refresher, what that means is we've been declared right with God. He has given us the very righteousness of His Son and taken away our sins, cleansed us completely simply by looking to Him in faith, by trusting Him. We are declared right. We have right standing with God. That's our justification. It's a legal term. God looks at you as righteous in Christ. Not because of anything you've done, but because of the obedience of Jesus alone. So all of us are justified in Christ, but he wants us to know that everyone who is justified is of necessity sanctified. And being sanctified, that means being set apart more and more from our sin unto holiness, to the Lord, and to what He loves. In the language of chapter 6, the way Paul put it is this, we have died to sin. We've died to sin. That means that we've died for, from the power of sin. Not from the presence of sin yet. That is coming in our final glorification. But we have been set free from the power of sin. It starts with freedom from the penalty of sin. That's another way of saying we've been justified. Or God no longer holds our sin against us. The devil can't rightly accuse us because Jesus has paid it all, all our sin. But now we have been set free from the power of sin. It no longer dominates you or me or anyone who is in Christ. Amen. And Paul proves this seminal truth to us by teaching us first what God has done for us in Christ. So we have learned in this first half of Romans 6 that we are united to Christ. We are joined to Him by faith. And in this sense, we've died with Christ. When He was crucified on the cross, in God's mind, all His children were crucified with Christ. 
We died with him, we were buried together with him, and we were raised together with him. Look at verse 6 of Romans 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that is with Christ, that the body of sin, that's these fleshly bodies that we still have, might be done away with. The better rendering for that phrase is that might be deprived of its power. The body of sin has been deprived of its power that we should no longer be slaves of sin. There it is. And look at verse 7. For he who has died with Christ has been freed from sin. So it's a freedom from the power, uh, from the the domination from the tyranny of sin. Look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Likewise, you also, knowing that this is true of Christ, that He has died, that He no longer has anything to do with the realm of sin and death, He has completed the work the Father gave Him to do in dying for our sins, and He's been raised victoriously from the dead. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves... Consider yourselves, conclude this truth about yourself in the light of what you've just been taught, that you also are dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Learn this truth, meditate on it, make it a conviction, the conviction of your heart. That's what Paul's saying. Know what God has done for you in Christ Meditate on that and let that become the conviction of your heart. And then in verse 12 and 13, act on that knowledge. That's the first imperative we get in the the whole epistle to Romans to this point. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin as you were doing previously without abandon, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members, the individual components that make you, you, from your mind to your will, and all your members in between, every faculty that you have and every body part that you have, may it be used as a literally a weapon of righteousness to God, for Him, for His service. And then this wonderful statement in verse 14, which is a summary truth of what we've been learning. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That is a statement of fact. It's God's declaration to all of you in Christ. Sin shall not reign over you. He's not saying, don't let sin have dominion over you. Actually, he's saying it doesn't have dominion over the sons of God. You are not under law, but under grace. And we looked at what that means to some extent last week when we began to unpack this. And as I said last week, really chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 is the full unpacking of what this means to not be under law, but under grace. So now we get to verses 15 to 23. That's the second half of chapter 6, and it's really one section. And what Paul is saying in summary in this section is this. Here's how you know that this is really true of you. That God has in fact united you to Christ and that he has set you free from the power of sin. Do you want to know how to know that for sure? The person you obey tells you who your master is and if you have in fact been freed from this power of sin. The person you obey tells you who your master is and if you have in fact been freed from the power of sin. So you could look at the first half of chapter 6 as doctrine, as instruction of what God in Christ has done for you to set you free from the crippling power of sin in order that you might live a life of holiness and righteousness. And verses 15 to 23 is now the test or the proof that you've truly been set free. So here's the outline for today, if you're taking notes, just three points. The first is, we're going to look at a presumptuous question in verse 15, a presumptuous question. We're going to look at a principle of slavery in verse 16, and we're going to look at a proof of who you really are in verses 17 and 18. So a presumption, a principle, and a proof. Let's look at verse 15. 
This is the presumptuous question. What then? What shall we conclude then, based on what just came before, particularly verse 14, that we're not under law but under grace? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. So Paul really asked the same kind of question that he started with in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And in chapter 6, verse 1, he was coming off of verse 21, the end of chapter 5, where he said, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin reigned in death, but now you're no longer under the reign of sin and death. You're now under the reign of grace. Question, does that mean that we can just sin as much as we want to put grace on display? That's the question of the lawless person, the so-called antinomian, which just means lawless. Um, is, Is God's grace an opportunity for us to sin more to put his grace on display? Is that somehow a a virtue, a good thing? And Paul, of course, squashes that immediately and says, absolutely not. God forbid, may it never be. That's a wretched thought. But here we have really the same thought looked at through a slightly different angle. He's now saying, since we're not under the law anymore, verse 14, but under grace, Shall we continue in sin? Before, grace was abounding to us, so is that license to sin? Now we're not under law, so is that license to sin? It's really the same question. And the sense is, shall we go on sinning because we are not under law but under grace? Should that be the pattern of our lives going forwards as it was before we came to Christ? Are we permitted to sin because God no longer condemns us by His law? Because we're no longer trapped by the law and shown to be guilty before the righteous judge of all the universe? Because we're no longer judged whether we're righteous based on our performance in the law, which is really a way of saying we were under the old covenant, a law of works. Because we're not under the law for our justification, loved ones, because we're not saved by our performance to the law, but by grace through faith in Christ, does that somehow give us license to sin? And the answer, again, is absolutely not. God forbid, may it never be. Just because we're not under law for our justification does not mean that we are lawless. Okay? That's the extreme. That's what the antinomian view is. You remember when Paul um, was talking about becoming all things to all men in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is, I think, a helpful idea. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. So his ambition, his motivation is winning souls to Christ. Verse 20, and to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, that's the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the nations of the world, I was as without law. And then in parentheses, this, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, why? That I might win those who are without law. So, without violating the law of God, Paul is saying, I want to stretch myself to reach my kinsmen after the flesh, the Jews, to save their souls, to lead them to Christ. So, if I can be as Jewish as I can be without violating the law, I'll do that. And if I can be uh, as one who is not under the law to the Gentiles, I will do that. But here's the constraint. Always, as always, under law toward Christ. See, that is our position as well, brothers and sisters. We are always under law toward Christ. And what is that? That's the law of love. Love fulfills the whole law. We're going to get into that as we continue our study of Romans. But just keep that anchored in your mind. We're never not under law in the absolute sense. We're always under law to Christ. We're just not under the law as a means of justification to be saved. 
We're not trying to achieve our righteousness by the law because we acknowledge fully that none of us is able to do that. Only Jesus was able to do that. And we trust in Him. Here's what we have to remember. The whole purpose of grace and salvation is, now note this, to deliver us from our sins. To deliver us from our sins. This is clear from the beginning of the gospel accounts, and I would just bring to your attention Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. This is when the angel came to Joseph, husband of Mary, and he said this concerning their divine son to be born. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the name, means God is salvation. It means Savior. And so the explanation of His name is, for He will save His people from their sins. He did not come to be a political Savior to the dismay of many of the Jews at the time. He did not come to be a Savior of financial poverty, those who are financially poor. He did not come for those who are in bad health to restore and promise good health. He did not come with, for those who have poor self-esteem to give them a better self-image. He came to be Savior of the world for, for, to save people from their sins. And not just some of their sins, but all of their sins. Entire salvation from their sin. Not just sin's penalty, that's our justification, but sin's power, that's our sanctification that we're talking about here. And one day, our inner glorification from sin's presence. We will be saved from our sin entirely, and that's the entire thrust of our salvation. That's the direction God is moving us. Last week, we um, looked at Psalm 130, and I just wanted to bring out this verse, or these two verses, 7 and 8 of Psalm 130. Listen to this. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with Him is abundant redemption, abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Abundance means, abundant means plenteous, multiplied, a very great redemption. That's what God has in his mind, and that's what he is working toward. Complete salvation of his people from their sins. But when he saves us from our sins, he doesn't just save us into a vacuum. He's saving us from one thing and unto something else. What is that something else? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. He wants us to be clear right off the bat. Salvation and even the faith that you have to believe in Christ is all a gift from God. It's His salvation. So that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we are His workmanship. The word in Greek is poema. Does that sound like poem? It's poem. We are His poem. Created in Christ Jesus, notice this, for good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here's the purpose of our salvation. We are saved from our sins for good works. And these are good works that God Himself has prepared beforehand. Before when? Before there was anything. In eternity, before the foundation of the world, before you and I were ever even here. God created good works that we should walk in them when? When we come to faith in Christ, in space and time. These are the works that we do. And so this is a picture of God as craftsman. He is the great poet who writes his poetry. And by the way, you and I are the words on the page of his poetry. And it's a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song because we are marching to the good works that He has prepared beforehand for us to do. And He loves the sound of His own good works. He is the master craftsman. So we are a new work. This speaks to our new nature. 
a poem, something entirely different from what we were before. And he saves us in order that we might be pleasing to him. So if that is God's whole thrust for our salvation, and it is, why then would we ever think that he would approve of us working against his purposes, continuing in the very thing that he hates? That's why Paul says, God forbid, may it never be. In fact, the truth is, it can't be for the true child of God. It won't be. The true child of God cannot continue in sin as he did before he was born again, before he was justified. That's why it's a presumptuous question, because it totally ignores a key purpose that God has for us in our salvation. Salvation from sin unto holiness, good works. Here's the second point, which is this the principle of slavery. Here's the general principle, let's go back to Romans 6 now, that Paul lays out for us. Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Now, this is the principle of slavery that Paul lays down for us, and he uses language that he's used for us before in Romans 6 verse 3. Don't you know? Do you not know this? This is a principle we must know. In fact, this is really a self-evident principle. This is not hard to understand. To whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. In other words, it's easy to know who your master is. It's the person you obey. Notice, it's not the one you say is your master with your profession, but it's the one who you actually follow in obedience that determines your master. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew 7, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, they'll identify with me by name. They make a profession, right? Lord, Lord, have we not done many things in your name? Have we not prophesied, spoken your word in your name? Have we not cast out many devils or demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders, mighty works in your name? And Jesus says this, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. You profess to know me, but I never had a relationship with you. Why? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, you who practice sin, You who still continue in sin, yet you make a profession to know me, I'm not your master. Your master is really sin, because you obey sin. In other words, you know who your master is by your deeds, by your lifestyle, by your pattern and your practice, not your profession. He says, To whom you present yourself. Same word as he used in verse 13 of chapter 6. To whom you offer yourself. You give yourself. You yield yourself to. And the word he uses is slaves to obey. Slaves. And I think most of the translations today, except for the King James Version, gets this right. The King James says servants. It's not. It's slaves. A servant is one who is voluntarily so. He can come and go as he pleases. A slave is somebody who is bound to their master in obedience because they're owned. So this concept of slave is really the key to understanding this whole argument about slavery and obedience and master. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. So I want you to notice a couple of things here. One is everybody is a slave in this language. Everybody's a slave. All humanity are slaves. There's no such thing as a truly autonomous person who's, quote, his own boss. It's not so. We saw really in verses 12 through 21 of chapter 5 that we are all, all humanity in Adam, born from Adam, ever since Adam, are slaves to sin and death. Why? Because we all inherited Adam's sinful nature. His corruption, his condemnation, his death became ours. That's called inherited sin. 
or original sin, but it's, it's inherited from Adam. We are slaves. No one starts in this world in a neutral position and then just decides which way they want to go, disobedience or obedience. No. We are all corrupted by Adam to begin with, and that's why we sin in practice. So everyone's a slave. Notice this. There's only two families. You're either in the family of sin or you're in the family of God, which here he calls obedience. So there's a personification here of sin and obedience, and we saw that idea before um, a couple of times in chapter 6. Even at the end of chapter 5, Paul says, so that as sin reigned in death, like a tyrant would reign. And then in chapter 6, verse 12, do not let sin reign. We called him general sin, like in the army, reigning over your mortal body, obeying him. Don't do that anymore. You don't need to. So these two are mutually exclusive. You've got general sin and general obedience, two families. And all are slaves either of sin or of obedience. They're mutually exclusive. You can't serve both. Remember when Jesus said, no man can serve two masters, right? He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, which is a reference to money. And money there represents idolatry. It represents anything that sets itself up as a competition to God. You cannot serve both. And notice this, each family has its own path. There's a directionality here to these pathways, whether of sin, literally to death. My New King James inserts leading to death to help with the understanding, but same thing. Sin leads to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. These are opposites, and there's movement in one of two directions. So here's the principle. Sin always leads to death in every form. You say, what does that mean? Physical death, spiritual, eternal, all forms. Sin leads to death. Paul doesn't specify which one particularly. We learned in chapter 5, verse 12, that it's death that comes through sin, which came through Adam and spreads to all mankind. In Romans 6.23, he's going to personify sin as an employer that pays wages. And the wages that we earn from our sin is death. James also says sin when it is full grown. In other words, there's a maturation, a process. When it's full grown, it brings forth death. So in every form, sin brings forth death. But here's the contrast. Obedience leads to righteousness. Now, this is very interesting, I find, because Paul's contrasting sin with obedience. What does that tell us about sin? If sin is the opposite of obedience, then sin is disobedience, right? Disobedience. And when he contrasts death, you would expect him to use the opposite, which is what? Life. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to life. He says sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Why? Because if Paul were saying that obedience leads to life, he could be accused of teaching a works-based righteousness. And he's not. He's very clear that our righteousness is by faith in Christ alone. See, our obedience, our own obedience, is not what ultimately leads us to life. Look at verse 17 of chapter 5, Romans 5.17. For if by one man's offense, that's a reference to Adam, Death reigned through the one. Much more those who receive, those who lay hold of abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, what's that? That's Jesus' obedience, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So we have life only because Christ obeyed and that obedience was counted as our obedience by the grace of God. That's our justification. We live because Christ obeyed perfectly for us, and God sees us in Christ. So, um, same idea in chapter 6, verse 4, when we talked about baptism, spiritual baptism, we've been baptized into Christ's death as he raised, excuse me, as we were baptized into Christ's death, it was God who raised us to newness of life. 
God raised us. So it's God in Christ who gives us this new spiritual life. In fact, brothers and sisters, that's the reason why you and I believed the gospel message. You remember Ephesians. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, spiritual corpses, lifeless, how much ability does a corpse have to respond to anything? Zero. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. That's why he says, by grace you have been saved. Right? Not by your faith, ultimately, you've been saved, but by grace you've been saved. So we have been brought to life by the Lord, and our new life now leads to obedience. And that obedience leads to righteousness. Another way of thinking about that is... Um, our new life is we are a good tree now. A good tree is able to produce obedience, which is good fruit. And that good fruit begets more good fruit, righteousness. And you say, well, I thought that we already established that righteousness was ours by believing in Christ. Yes, but he's not talking here about our justification. He's talking about our sanctification. He's not talking about our standing or our position before God as righteous in Christ. He's talking about our practice of actual holiness, that God is making us more and more like Jesus as we grow in grace. So sin always leads to death, but obedience leads to righteousness, holiness of life. We are either in Adam, obeying general sin, or we are in Christ, obeying general obedience, if you will. So how do you know which family you belong to? Simple. Just answer this question. Who is your master? Who is your master? To whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey. If you present yourselves to general sin as the pattern of your life, then you are still under the reign of sin and death, even if you profess faith in Christ. If you present yourself, however, to general obedience as the new pattern of your life, I'm not talking about a perfect obedience. I'm talking about a pattern of obedience, a trajectory in that direction. You are under the reign of grace in life. So that's how you know. That's the general principle of slavery. And, and really now this brings us to how can we be sure? What's the proof to know who we really are? Verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And there's so much just in this verse. Um, sermons have been preached just on one ver this verse. But let me just bring out a couple of points. You were slaves of sin. There is a radical change that takes place in the life of every true believer. Radical, uh, life-altering, large change. It's this, you were slaves of sin. That's a past tense. In other words, this is no longer the case for you if you're in Christ. You're no longer a slave to sin. Friends, do you know that you were slaves to sin before you came to Christ? Do you know that? What does it mean to be a slave to sin? I mean, I think when you ask that question of people, they typically think, well, that applies to those who are addicted to vice. It might be alcohol, drugs, um, sexual sin, whatever it might be, gambling. That's easy to see, slavery to sin, right? What about the polite, upstanding, so-called respectable person in society? The person who pays their taxes on time. The person who provides for their family. The person who gives to worthy causes, gives their time, gives their money. Maybe they even attend church regularly. What about those people? Are they slaves to sin? Listen to what our Lord Jesus says about what it means to be a slave to sin. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, speaking to the Jews, to the Pharisees, who professed to be believers in Christ. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now, 
I think we've covered this previously, but just by way of reminder, he's not saying whoever commits a sin ever is the slave of sin. He's saying whoever practices sin is the slave of sin. Commits it in that sense, perpetually, lives in it, abides in it because they love it. That person is the slave of sin. It's really the same idea that we're looking at in Romans 6.16. You are the slave of the one you obey, right? And the Jews, how did they take that? They were offended, right? They were offended by Jesus that they would be called slaves to anyone. I mean, they saw themselves as freemen. They were children of Abraham. No child of Abraham is a slave, is in bondage to anyone. Of course, that overlooks their history in Egypt and other times when they were in exile. But um, they could only see that they were free because of their physical lineage, their descendancy from Abraham. And Jesus said this, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Well, what's that? Abraham believed God. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. These Jews were in the presence of the great I Am. His name is Jesus. Jesus the Christ of Nazareth. And they did not believe him. So they didn't act like Abraham. They didn't believe God. Why? Jesus said, it's because your father is the devil. And you do the deeds of your father. He was a liar from the beginning. He abides not in the truth, and that's why you don't abide in the truth. Do you understand why you cannot understand my speech? It's because you don't have the ability to hear my voice, my word. You can't understand me because you're not of my sheep, John chapter 10. You don't belong to me. You're in darkness. You're slaves to sin. See, the sin of the Pharisees on that occasion was the great, ultimate, all-encompassing sin of unbelief. Not believing God when God speaks. That's the worst sin of all. Here's what slavery to sin looks like. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, hidden, covered, obscured, it is veiled to those who are perishing whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The God of this age is a reference to Satan, to the devil. And we are told that he has blinded the minds of all who don't believe. This, brothers and sisters, is the epitome, the heart of slavery to sin. It's unbelief. It is unbelief in Christ. That's why the Pharisees speaking to Jesus could not believe. They were slaves to sin. That's why you and I couldn't believe at one point in our lives. We heard the gospel and we rejected it. We had no interest in the truth. We loved our sin too much because we were veiled. Our hearts were blinded. Spiritually, we couldn't understand because we were slaves of sin. Here's another way to think about slavery to sin. It's to seek one's own pleasures and one's own happiness. Isn't that the American dream? I mean, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness apart from Christ. That's the sin. Independent of Christ, trying to find peace and happiness and joy in ourselves or in any other thing. That's the essence. That's the heart of sin that is so reprehensible to God. And sin enslaves. It promises much, but then destroys. Let me just give you a quick example of this. Not telling the truth, lying. What happens the first time we tell a lie? And that might be too long ago for us to remember, right? It starts early. The first time, we are probably very scared, very scared, because the conscience is doing its job. It's an alarm system that says, don't do this. This is wrong. God disapproves of this. But we do it anyway. And so what happens? The next time we try it, we might be somewhat disturbed still by trying to lie. The alarm's a little bit quieter. But by the third, fourth, and so on times, it just becomes much easier. And pretty soon what happens, we sear our conscience so that the alarm system sensitivity is dialed way off so that we pretty much don't hear the alarm anymore. And that's how people are able to sin with impunity as they do because 
They're totally enslaved. That's slavery to sin. It traps you. It overpowers you. It has its way with you. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. He says you were slaves of sin. This is no longer true of you if you're in Christ. A radical change has taken place in our lives. And what has changed exactly? Well, our master has changed. He says you were slaves of sin, but who are we now? Look at verse 18 of Romans 6. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Look at verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, God, you have your fruit to holiness. So we were slaves of sin. We are now slaves of God and of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the single greatest change that could possibly occur in somebody's life. That's why the Scripture uses such um, helpful metaphors and examples as darkness and light. You were darkness, but now are you light in the Lord? That's a radical change, wouldn't you say? Lights off to lights on. You were dead in trespasses, but now you are alive together with Christ. The Scripture says things like, you must be born again. Your current state is not acceptable to God, and you can't do anything to reform it. It has to be completely made new. See, anyone who is in Christ is, as was quoted this morning, a new creature or a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Darkness to light, death to life, old creation to new creation. Now, yes, we are still sinners, but brothers and sisters, we have an entirely new heart, a new attitude towards sin. Rather than love it, rather than coddle it, rather than endure it and, 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 and pamper it, we hate it now. We hate it when we sin. In fact, if we abide in sin, we are going to be the most miserable people on the planet because God will not allow us to, to stay in that condition. He's purchased us so that we would be sanctified, delivered from sin. That's the new pattern of our life. We now humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters when we sin against them, right? We now humble ourselves before our spouses and our children when we've sinned against them. God help us. We uh, are learning to prefer others before ourselves. We had a wonderful study in Philippians this morning on that very point. We love righteousness and we are learning to obey Jesus more and more. Not perfectly, but that's the new pattern of life for the Christian. That's a radical change. So here's the question. Do you see this radical change in your life? Maybe another question that's helpful is, do others in your life see that radical change in you and in me? Or are we Christians only on Sundays? And the rest of the week, it's maybe hard for people to discern that we are Christians at all based on our pattern of behavior. Those who are under grace have undergone a radical transformation. And we have to ask these questions of the text. How did the change occur? How did it occur? Well, Paul says this, Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, notice first, this is a change that is radical because it involves all of us. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Those are key words. Obey, that signals the will. The heart is the affection. Doctrine means instruction or teaching which touches the mind. So, in all three areas, the will, the affection, the mind, you are affected by the truth of God. It engages all of us when we have genuine faith. All of us. The devil is a mimic. He copies God. He seeks to copy God. He's not able to. But he does copy. He seeks to copy God. And he does so in this way, I think. He really seeks to engage a part of us to excite us. He might seek to engage our mind with something intellectual that stimulates us while it leaves the heart cold. He might seek to stimulate the heart and get us excited with our affections while ignoring the truth in the mind. Or he might go directly for the will, the things that we just ought to do because we ought to do them, but ignores the heart and the mind. So it's, a, it's, an, it's not a balance. I mean, I, you think about the Pharisees. 
they were engaged totally in their minds. I mean, they knew the Scriptures well. These people were students of the Word. The scribes were copying letter by letter, word by word. They knew the Word well, but their, their hearts were far from the Lord. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, we're told that he was amazed by the signs and the wonders that were done by Philip. Right? Wonderful signs. But it was only the affections of Simon that were engaged. His mind was not engaged to the truth. He had no understanding of truth. So, so it goes like that. All false religion, all cults, this is where the devil has his playground. He, he seeks to touch one aspect of us with, without touching the other aspects. But God in Christ, He touches all of us. He captures our whole person because He gives us a new nature. He makes us a new creation. That's what it means. And what does He do here? So He says, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. Form, it's the Greek word, Typos, which is type in English. It's a pattern or a stamp made through an impression. Um, I love this imagery. It's, it's also the picture of a mold, a mold that a craftsman would use to cast metal. So he would heat up liquid, excuse me, heat up metal as a liquid and then pour that metal into this cast, this mold, in order to reform it, to reshape it. And that's really what Paul is getting at here when he says, you obeyed from the heart that mold of doctrine, of instruction to which you were delivered. Now, this is so important. Um, again, I think it's just the King James that doesn't get this right in its translation. They say, that translation says, um, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered to you. It's not what it says. The Greek is clear on this. It says, to which you were delivered. And this is the same word that is used when Jesus is delivered up to Pilate, handed over to him. So it means committed to or entrusted to or given over to. You were like that metal that God superheats and pours into a mold. You were given into this mold. And what's the mold? It's the form of doctrine. It's the teaching of Scripture. Now remember, Paul did not found the church at Rome that he's writing to. This was founded by someone else. We don't know who. Perhaps somebody who was there at the day of Pentecost. There were Romans there. This is a doctrinally sound church, but Paul is writing to them as an apostle. They hadn't received apostolic teaching on the fullness of the grace of God in Christ. And so that's what he's doing. He's writing to them and he's saying, look, you believers at Rome have already obeyed that form of doctrine. Well, what did they obey? They obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth of Scripture. It's just really this, the whole message that Paul is detailing for us has been detailing from the beginning of Romans 1. The whole message that starts with the wrath of God abides on all of us. All of us who suppress, suppress the truth of God in our own unrighteousness. God's wrath abides on man in sin. And then he goes on in chapters 2 and 3 to say, all are sinners, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, all are guilty before the Lord because they don't keep the law perfectly as he requires. And then in chapter 3, he says, but there's good news. There's a righteousness that God has revealed by faith in his Son. And all who trust in him alone have the very righteousness of Christ given to them by imputation, by credit. That's the body of truth, brothers and sisters, that we are considering, learning, understanding. And by grace, God is changing us. He's reshaping us into that mold of Scripture. You see the idea? Scripture is the mold. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, that's teaching, for reproof, a convincing that what is said is true, for correction. Correction, that word means to straighten what is crooked. Same idea as the mold. The mold recasts what is out of shape into the shape it wants it to be. And how does that happen? Well, that happens through a, a heating process. So there you can think about the trials that the Lord ordains for us. The pressures, the persecutions, the hardship is how He recasts us into the truth of His Word and makes us more like His Son, who is the perfect mold. Paul tells Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words. Same idea and same word, in fact. Hold fast the mold, the pattern, the type of sound 
healthful words which you have learned, heard from me, in faith and love which are in Christ. So here's the idea. Previously you were, and I was, given over to sin, as slaves to sin. We were given over to that. But now we're given over to sound doctrine as slaves of God. We're given over to what is good, what is best. In other words, you believe the truth. When the gospel was preached to you, you heard it and you believe the truth because you had received the faith to believe. You were cast into the mold of Scripture and you are being conformed to it more and more. So here's again this craftsmanship idea, not from the perspective of a poet writing poetry as we saw in Ephesians 2, but now from the perspective of a blacksmith or a metalsmith, a metal worker who forges us into the mold of his word. He is a master builder who is building the temple of God with living stones, you and me, for a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. He is also a master husbandman who plants the trees, new trees, in the field of Jesus Christ who, who, who causes us to bear good fruit. He's also a, a husbandman who grafts us as branches into the vine. He's a master creator whose heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork, Psalm 19. He is truly wonderful. So what's the result of being put into this mold? Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say this, you believed from the heart. No, he says you obeyed from the heart. This is important because true faith, genuine faith, is always evidenced by obedience. It's not just what we say we believe, but it's actually evidenced by the fact that we obey. Obedience is what shows that you have been put into the mold of God's Word and you are taking its shape. And that is really the defining characteristic of a slave. We are obedient to the mold. We read Titus 2 this morning, and I wanted us to read that to hear this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, notice the purpose, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. That's forgiveness of all our sins. And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. There's the holiness of life. You see, we may say that we believe all the right things, but if our life is not marked by a pattern of obedience to God's Word, we've never been put into the mold. That's what we're being taught here. It, we are self-deceived. John says it this way in 1 John 1.6, If we say we have fellowship with Him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We lie. True faith is always shown by obedience. And Paul thanks God for the obedience of this body here in the Roman church. He thanks God. He says, I first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Wonderful. That sounds like they believe. But what's the evidence that they believe? At the end of Romans in chapter 16 verse 19, he says, for your obedience has been come has become known to all. Your obedience has become known to all. That's how people know that you really believe because you obey. And then lastly, we have to ask this question, brothers and sisters, of the text in verse 17. Who is the one who poured us into this mold of Scripture to believe and to love the truth with all of our being, our heart, our mind, and our will? Who is the one who cast us into this mold? He says, to which you were delivered. That means you didn't deliver yourself. You didn't put yourself uh, out of the natural mold you came into this world with, which is your sin nature, and recast yourself into a new mold. You didn't do that. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Can anyone change their own nature? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That's what Jeremiah says. You do what your nature is. 
If you are to change in your obedience as a practice of life, your nature first has to change. And that's a work that you can't do for yourself. So that's why Paul says this, but God be thanked. God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Yes, we had a part in our uh, and a responsibility in our salvation to believe the message, to have faith, to exercise faith. He acknowledges that, but he says, do you understand that the reason why you obeyed is all thanks to God? Because He has given you understanding, spiritual ears to hear the truth and to believe the message. All credit goes to the Lord, not only for your deliverance from sin, but for your obedience from the heart. This gift of faith we have is truly a gift from God. We have no ability to believe on our own. Let him who glories glory in the Lord. Salvation is totally a boast in the Lord, and it's his work. It is good that we remind ourselves, like Paul is of us here, that we had a former state. We had a former state. We used to be slaves. It's good for us to come back to that truth again and again. Why? Well, because it shows that the Lord has done a great work in our lives. It causes us to praise Him. I mean, this is the biblical medicine that we need that kills pride and exalts the Lord. This is the biblical medicine we need that keeps us totally dependent on the Lord, watchful of sin in our lives and in the lives of each other. And it's the medicine that motivates us to serve God further. Because we're seeing what? We're seeing spiritual progress. It is wonderful. It's exciting to see that the Lord is growing us in His grace. Doesn't that make you want to serve Him more? Amen. It's like this. Look at your deliverance. If God has brought you initial deliverance, you can rest assured He is going to bring you final deliverance as well. He brought Israel out of Egypt as their initial deliverance. He surely brought them across the Jordan into the promised land. Final deliverance. He's going to do that with each one of you and me, brothers and sisters. And he's evidencing that he will based on the holiness of life that you are showing. Thanks be to him. We have a presumptuous question, which we now know how to answer. God forbid. We have a principle of slavery, which is easy to understand. You are the slave of the one whom you obey. And we have a proof of who we really are because we know who our master is and which family we belong to. Brothers and sisters, do you know who you belong to this morning? Which family you're in? Which direction you're heading? I pray that you do. And perhaps you're somebody who, if you're honest with yourself, would say that you still are enslaved to sin. And in that case, there's still good news for you. Repent. Turn from your, your unbelief. Turn from your sin, and turn from yourself, ultimately, to God. To God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust on Him. Look to Him, and He will save your soul. It's a simple message. It's profound strength, divine strength, that enables all of that. But He does it. He's doing it. You and I are in evidence right here. We are the poem of God that He is writing so that all the world can read us, so to speak, and see that we have been written with the hand of God. We're not like everybody else. Praise be to God. We're not like who we used to be. Praise be to God. All praise be to God. He is the master, and in his service, our burden is light. It's a joy to serve him, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Amen. We're going to look at this more next week, Lord willing, as we continue our study. Let's give him the thanks this morning as we close in prayer. Father, what can we say in response to what you have done for us except thank you? We are humbled to the ground, Lord, that you should look on us sinners with any kind of favor when what we deserve is eternal death, hell, punishment apart from you. Father, thank you that you are a Savior. Thank you that you do not have any delight in the death of the wicked but that we should repent and live, that we should look to you in faith and find our fullness of joy and a new life. 
a fullness of life, an abundant life which Christ came that we might have. He came and suffered for us that we might live and enjoy the fellowship of God and the Spirit of God just as you live. Lord, help us to do that more and more. To realize what has been done for us in Christ, to evidence or to see the evidence of your hand in each of our lives that you have changed us, radically transformed us. We now have different aspirations, different longings, different desires. Yes, we still sin and we ask for forgiveness when we sin. Lord, help us to sin less. God, help us to repent quickly when we sin. May we have the conviction of the Lord that we would not stay in our sin. Help us, Father, to confess to you and to each other that we might know the forgiveness of God and the joy of the Lord, the joy that you are at work within us, the author and the perfecter of our faith. You will bring us home to glory, Lord. You're showing it by showing yourself in our lives. We can't explain this apart from you. We ask, Lord, that you would help us more and more to live to the praise of your glory. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you, Lord, for the common um, struggles that we have, that we might encourage each other to look to you. You are the all-sufficient one. You are glorious, and you deserve all the praise. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.